to Grade Sevens Talk to Experts, a podcast where Grade Seven students talk to an expert about their area of specialty. This is a special bonus episode of the second season of Grade Sevens Talk to Experts, where the students get to talk to the author of Touching Spirit Bear, Mr. Ben Michelson. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Good morning. <laughs> it's, uh, it's nice to be here with you under funny conditions and circumstances, but, um, but we're, we're all doing good. Um, you guys, what I was thinking of doing this morning, um, instead of just throwing it out, I understand you guys have been reading Touching Spirit Bear. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take about 10 or 15 minutes and explain to you some of the um, reasons, I guess, and some of the research that went into the creation of the book. And then I'll turn it over and and uh, uh, for question and answers. I, um, if you ask me on any of my other books that I've ever written and published, um, where did you come up with the idea? I could, I could come up with the answer in one sentence. I could just say, well, uh, Rescue Josh McGuire I created because I helped save two orphan bear cubs once that were destroyed by the fish and game department. Or stranded, I could say, well, I helped save two shortfin pilot whales um, on, you know, on the East Coast in the Atlantic Ocean once, and I saw the release, so I wanted to write a story that uh, uh, about saving a whale. Um, I can't do that with Touching Spirit Bear. I, I call, I call Touching Spirit Bear my emotional autobiography. Um, I'm, I'm kind of every person in that book: um, Peter Driscoll, uh, Cole Matthews. Edwin Garvey at a different time in my life. I was, you guys, I was born and raised down in Bolivia, South America. And uh, we, we tend to erroneously have this, this image or stereotype of a minority being somebody that uh, is either, you know, a different uh, sex or, or different, uh, maybe different colored skin, uh, their culture is different. Um, in Bolivia, I was the minority. I was a white-skinned person in a dark-skinned society, and I knew at a very, very early age what it was like to be teased, be held down, to have kids smear mud in my face, to be called a gringo. And um, I knew what it was like to look at my skin and not like who I was based on who I thought I might be. And um, so. Uh, when I came to the United States of America in seventh grade, I could, I was never sent to school or homeschool until seventh grade. And uh, then it was a way to boarding school uh, where I had very strict English matrons that didn't treat a child like me uh, uh, remedially. They treated me punitively. If I didn't do an assignment exactly right, I, I got a strapping with a leather strap. And so when I came to the United States, I was so glad because I was going to be around other kids that I thought were going to be just like me now, of course, because the skin color was the same. And, and it turns out, students, that my skin color was the only thing that wasn't, uh, you know, different. The, I, I could barely read a comic book. And so I was in all the remedial classes. I was starting to think of myself that, you know, I, I was uh, inept and I... I remember the way I dressed coming to school with bobby socks and bow ties and suspenders and and right away the teasing uh, started again. And I, I remember getting so angry at that age that I, I started um, I started being a 
become a, a bully. I would tease other students because I found that if I made other students afraid of me, that they wouldn't pick on me as much. And um, that wasn't good. That wasn't good because there came a day when I realized that I didn't want to go through life that way either. And then I started realizing that the more you, how you treat the world is how it treats you. And and I started uh, probably becoming a little more like Garvey. Um, and so you can see where I was Peter Driscoll at one point in my life. I was Cole Matthews at another point in my life. And then I was Garvey. Um, I don't know, you guys, I'm not old. <laughs> and uh Maybe someday when I grow old and if I live long enough and if I learn enough and become wise enough, maybe someday I'll I'll be become an Edwin. We'll see. Um, but anyway, so that was in my past. Um, we didn't have television in Bolivia, and so I I'd never seen a television show in my life. And one of the first shows I saw when I came to the United States was I I um, I saw uh, General Ben with a little boy and a big bear that trusted him. And I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to have a big bear that trusted you? And I think that's where the, the seed was planted. I eventually helped out with bear studies in college. And and uh, then I got a phone call one day from an animal rights group and they had a little bear cub in, in, Mon or in Minnesota that had had its front claws removed. And uh, when they were done with the studies, they were gonna destroy this cub. And they wanted to know if I could find a home. Well, they there wasn't really a home to be had because the zoos didn't want what they call altered animals. And they couldn't release the little cub to the wild because it couldn't protect itself. And so I decided I would raise this little cub. And when I when I started raising uh, Buffy, I'll, I'll see if I can uh, find a quick picture here for you. This is, this is kind of what he looked like when, um, when he was when he was young and that's probably what I looked like too when I was young <laughs> but anyway um, I had I raised this black bear for 27 years and we became very 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 close more more close than I could have ever imagined this is what he looked like um, years later you probably get a little glare there but he was he, he trusted me, you guys. He trusted me so much that he would actually hold out his paw that was the size of a dinner plate. And he would allow me to cut open an abscess-infected toe with a razor blade while he bit on his other paw going, ah, ah. And um, my sisters don't trust me that much. But uh, when he died about oh, seven years ago, it was really tragic. It was really, really sad. I... um. It took me a long time to get over that, and I told my wife that we were probably never going to have another animal, raise another animal, because it hurt too much when they were gone. And uh, month after month, we kept talking about it. And then one day, she said, Ben, why don't you come to town? And I I came to town, and we got another, another creature. And uh, you guys, <laughs> I thought, you know, it turned out to be this monster, huge. It's unbelievable. In fact, I'm going to see if I can uh, show you, just for the fun of it, I'm going to see if I can show you this this monster. Um, I'll see if my wife can bring bring her in and and uh, it would put a chain on her and, and maybe get her through the back door. I'll see. Hey, Connie, can you bring in the monster? 
we'll give her a sec because it takes a while to get this get this guy moving. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you guys, get ready. Here comes the monster. Here it is. <laughs> Yeah. She looks vicious. <laughs> so there, okay. <laughs> but you guys, I digress. <laughs> okay, so um, that was another uh, thing in my past, okay? Um, all of these ingredients were coming in. I had a friend in Minneapolis that had worked with uh, Circle Justice, and he described to me how working with... Uh, uh, healing instead of punishing was so productive. And um, I had all these things in my mind. I, I, I had a bear. I, I, I noticed this with my bear, that how I treated the bear was how it treated me. If I, if I was silly, it was silly. And he'd, play, he'd be silly. If I played rough, <laughs> he played really rough. If I, um, if I came in his pen and I was sad, He'd come up and put his chin on my shoulder and said, it's beer you ever saw. But if I ever, ever went in with him and I was angry, he was dangerous. Okay, can you see in the story Touching Spirit Bear how Cole, how he treated the bear when, it, when he tried to kill it? It almost killed him. But at the end when he thought he was dying and he saw that there was beauty in the world and before he th died, uh, he just wanted to touch that spirit bear. The bear stood there and allowed it. Then I started realizing that life was that way, that how I treated life was how it treated me. If I was having a really, really bad day, probably the very, very best uh, way of finding out how to make it better was go look in a mirror because it was me causing it in most cases. And um, But I remember one day, one day, and all of these different ingredients that were in that were in the book, but I didn't see them as being part of a story until one day I turned on the television and the, the first newscast was in a little town called Littleton, Colorado at a high school called Columbine. And some of you may not recognize Columbine, but um, it's, it, it would be, I guess, uh, and I'm not sure up in Canada if, if you follow this news as much, but it was our, our probably this generation Sandy Hook. It was a couple students that had been picked on a lot and teased a lot and nobody really looked at their side of the coin and said, why are we treating these students as outcasts? And they got so angry, they turned around and came back and caused damage to a lot of their friends. And it was sad, it was so sad, but that was the moment that, that all of these ingredients like gas seeping into a room and then it exploded, and I knew that I needed to write Touching Spirit Bear. And um, when, I, when I write a, a, a book, any book uh, that I have, I, I do a lot of research. I really do my, you know, very, very involved research. And um, in this case, I went up to British Columbia and on Princess Royal Island, where the spirit bear is rumored to exist, um, I did my research. Now, there, there's some people, there's some people that... Um, say the spirit bear doesn't exist, that it's just, it's just uh, uh, folklore. And um, when I went up there, there was a Japanese film crew that had been up there for a month with a helicopter and had never seen one. And so I kind of knew that I would never really see a, a real spirit bear, but I wanted to go up and do my research. I, I, it was late September and I wanted this to be about a, a five or six week, maybe a four week 
survival story, you know. And so I um, I jumped into the surf uh, a mile offshore and I swam to shore. And you guys, I've had survival classes. I know how to start a fire, you know, uh, without matches. But yeah, I was so cold when I got ashore and it had been raining for solid for like a month. And I, there was no way in the world that I was getting a fire started. And finally, after about three hours, my, um, I, I started getting clumsy and, and I started slurring my words. And I had to have them come ashore from the sailboat that I was on and with hot chocolate and, and, uh, and some blankets. And, um, but then I turned the story from a month survival story. I turned that story into a, a one or two or three day survival story because if I couldn't survive, and I've had survival training. A, a city kid could never survive um, being thrown up there like that. So then that's how I had Cole come up and go onto the hot ground. It was because the story needed that to be authentic. And I've always wanted my, my stories to be authentic. Um, so those were those were some of the things that, that went into the making of, of uh, Touching Spirit Bear. Um, it's just wonderful for me to announce to you guys that uh, Touching Spirit Bear a few years ago has been optioned for big screen production. And um, I was talking to the executive producer just yesterday, and there's still uh, some hurdles to get over uh, for the production, but but yeah, they're working on it. And uh, so keep your fingers crossed and maybe someday we'll see the actual uh, movie on screen. Um, I think that's about it for right now. The, 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 Spirit Bear, um, I, I will say this in, before we switch it over to questions, is, is it is a black bear. It's, it's, it's not a black black bear, but it's a white black bear. And it's not a, it's not a, um, um, it's not a, uh, um, an albino. It's a recessive genetic, genetic gene. And when I was up there, um, I kind of knew I wouldn't see a, a real spirit bear, but on the second day I was uh, I was on the island. I was it was and to be fair with the story, I have to be honest with you. It was near dusk and it was kind of hazy out. Okay, and out of the mist, I was standing on the shoreline just below a high tide line, and out of the mist came this magnificent white spirit bear, and it drifted towards me down the shoreline, came down to within 20 feet of me, picked up a big salmon on the on the beach, it had um, salmon blood on its paws, and it looked right at me, and then turned around and faded back into the mist. And this will show my age. Um, I it was before digital photography, okay, and so we had what we call double reflex film. We'd put in the film, and then you the film was good for like 24 in images or 36 images, and you take these pictures. But now you had to develop the film. And so you had to wait for maybe three, four weeks till you got home and then wait another week while they developed the film. And so it was a solid month before I got to see this one picture that I snapped of the spirit bear coming towards me. And I'll, I'll let each of you try to guess in your mind what was on that image when I developed it. This is what it looked like. And that was a spirit bear. And it... Um, it wasn't an albino because you can see it had black eyes, black nose, but it was a recessive genetic gene. They call them cremotes. That was the salmon blood on its paws. And um, they, there's, they're rumored to have maybe 200 of these still in the world, and they're very, very rare. 
but this is a picture I got off the internet. So this, I did not take this picture, but there's a mother uh, black bear with her Komodi um, offspring, a spirit bear. And um, so that's some of the, some of the stories behind touching spirit bear. Let's go ahead and turn it over now to you guys. And uh, let's see if, um, let's see if you guys have some questions. Uh, just before I, Mike, it's, if you have questions, you can line up behind me. Um, just a comment for you, or I guess a question for you as well. I myself, uh, I resonate with your personal story about Bolivia and then immigrating to the United States. Um, I was born in Mexico and well, uh, I immigrated to Canada when I was three. And uh, so my family, uh, my extended family, my cousins and such, uh, because I grew up in Ontario, was raised there, they often saw me as, as an English person, um, where the people that I uh, went to school with, um, I, was, I was an m and I was a Mexican Mennonite. And so yeah. that, that feeling of, of not belonging in either world uh, really resonates with me uh, in your story. Now, you also mentioned um, that you, you kind of became that bully in, uh, in your uh, junior high, high school. Was there, was there a time that that stopped and, and what stopped that? For me, for me, the bullying stopped when I started realizing that I didn't, it was one thing to not get beat up, okay? But it was another thing to not have kids like you either. And just to, just to know that, that, you know, that I wasn't making friends that way. And I realized that going through life with the world afraid of you, that was not a very, very good way to go through life either. And so, I think it was just a matter of, I wanted friends. I wanted to be like everybody else, be accepted. And I couldn't do that if I was, if I was being a bully. Makes sense. Awesome. We got some questions here. So I'll let them come up, take off their mask and uh, ask you. I'm going to have my wife give me a little hand with a setting on the screen. Hey, Connie, can you help for a sec? Um, I, um, I erased the notifications, but now I can't get my picture back. What do I do? Right. Okay. Sorry guys. No worries. All good. There we go. Down the bottom. Okay. Yeah. I am so, awesome. I'm so computer illiterate. You guys, I work on my word processing okay. program and so I can make that dance. But, um, my wife still has to remind me how to turn my computer on. <laughs> no worries. Okay, what's your first question? Hi, my name is Ryan, and my question is: In your opinion, what is the best part about being an author? Um, <clears throat> it it it's opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, I used to be very, very, very shy, and I used to have very limited goals in terms of what I thought of myself and what I could become. Um, but as I got invited to go and speak at schools more and be in the public and be on, on uh, uh, panels with other authors, I started getting self-confidence and started realizing that, hey, <laughs> I can do this, you know, and it was kind of a self-discovery. Um, and then there came a time when I I realized that with my writing, I was getting out, <clears throat> getting recognition, and I was meeting some really, really neat people. And uh, 
it wasn't very long before I I'd won a couple big awards. And oh my goodness, they invited me to these big conferences to speak in front of 2,000 teachers. And you guys, I got so scared. I swear, I hope that I don't offend anybody. I might about wet my pants, you know. And But I started getting confidence in myself and I started realizing that I could go places and do things that uh, I always wanted to. But it wasn't going to be easy because I had to I had to become comfortable with all of this. And so I think that's what I probably liked. If I look back at my whole career, gosh, I've got to meet some of the most wonderful people like you guys. You know, I would never be sitting here this morning if it hadn't been for my writing. Good question. Thanks for answering my question. Hi, my name is Regan, and my question is, even though boarding school was not the best time, what was something good that happened? <clears throat> um, when I was being sent away to boarding school, I didn't see it as a positive at the time, but when I was being sent away to boarding school, I got to ride my very, very first airplane. And it was a big DC-3 flying from La Paz, Bolivia to Cochabamba down in the lowlands. And it was only about a 25-minute airplane ride but it was before 9-11 and uh, when they didn't lock the, the doors, you know, to the cockpit. And so the door was still open and, and I, I was a little nine-year-old kid. And I went up, I snuck up to the front and I peeked in the cockpit door and it was like a spaceship. Man, it was cool. And the co-pilot caught me and he says, come up here. And I said, I didn't touch nothing. He goes, no. I want to show you the cockpit and he showed me all of the instruments and what they did. And then he stood up and I said, I didn't touch nothing because in my little world, you guys, an adult didn't move their twitch a muscle unless it was to punish me. And he said, no, I want you to sit down. You're going to fly this airplane. And I said, no way. And I sat down and he said, this is the yoke. It's like a steering wheel. Left is left, right is right. But if you pull back, you're going up, you push down, you're going down. He said, pull back. And I said, no, <laughs> if I ever, if I crash this airplane, my parents won't ever speak to me again. And he goes, no, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> he said, pull back. And I pulled back and this big airplane full of people lumbered upward in the sky. And he went to go right, go left. I think the people in the back thought we were going through some rough weather. But what he did at the end was cool. He, he, nailed, he kneeled down. He was no longer an adult when he kneeled down, right in that little space between the pilot and co-pilot seat. He was at my level, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, you've flown before, haven't you? And I said, no. <laughs> he goes, man, you ought to, because you're a natural. I became a pilot because of that. And I've flown many, many thousands of hours, and I've flown uh, over the North Pole, and I've been coast to coast, and I've flown into Canada, and and it's, it's been a really neat thing in my life that was introduced to me back then by somebody that was positive. Good question. Thank you. Also, where, what's your favorite place you've ever traveled? Like, since you're a pilot, what is your favorite place? I, I don't know that I have a favorite place. Um, I, I, I love flying uh, into the little uh, back strip, uh, backwood strips in Idaho and in Utah. Um, Western Montana, and I used to live in Montana for 38 years, and um, so I, I really, really like flying into those little places. I, I fell in love with the Inside Passage, going all the way up the British Columbia coast, um, all the way up to the Inside uh, Passage to Alaska and and Southeast Alaska, around Juneau and Ketchikan, and I fell in love with that area. 
And so about three years ago, I finally moved out to Anacortes, Washington. It's about, oh, maybe an hour and a half north of Seattle. And I bought myself a great big old boat and I'm learning to use it. And someday I want to take it and go up to Alaska. In fact, I will, I will show you guys. <laughs> this is, let's see if I have it here. This is the name of my boat. It's Spirit Bear. Okay, next question. Thank you. I'm Zoe, and I was wondering, is Cole, Garvey, and Edwin made up, or are they actual people in your life? They're, like I said, they're, they're made up. They're, they're fictitious characters. They're, they're not based on real characters, except that they were me at different times in my life. I didn't have to think of how, what it was like to be picked on all the time. I just had to remember my own past to create Peter Driscoll. And I really did not have to uh, imagine very hard uh, Cole Matthews, his anger, because that anger had been my anger for many years. And then Garvey deciding that that's not a good way to go through the world and being a productive person on the, on the planet is a lot better. That was me too. So in a sense, it was real based on my own experience fictionalized, but it wasn't real because it wasn't a particular person that I'd met. That's a good question. Thank you. You bet. Hi, um, are you currently working on a book right now? Um, I'm always working <laughs> on a book, but I, um, <clears throat> I've slowed down some as I've gotten older now. I've uh, got a few projects that I'm doing that have nothing to do with my writing. But yeah, I'm always writing. I, I haven't had a book published for a few years, but I've got one that is getting really close to being ready to send off. And I've got another idea for a book that I'm really uh, strong on. I, I don't talk much about my future projects, and it's not because they're big, you know, uh, national secret or anything like that, or, but it's because my... My, my ideas change so much from when I come up with the idea and start writing to a year, year and a half later when I flush the idea out on paper, it always turns out to be so much different that if I told you today that, hey, this is my next book I'm writing about, if we talked in another year, you'd say, uh, Mr. Michelson, that doesn't sound at all like the book that you were talking about. And, uh, and I'd have to say, yeah, it changed on me. So, but yeah, I, I, I probably will go to my grave writing just because it's my way of expressing myself. Thank you for answering my question. Yeah, you bet. Hello, my name is Elizabeth. My question is, what is your favorite book that you've written and why is it your favorite? Um, I didn't used to have a favorite, but I have actually two favorites now. And um, one is Touching Spirit Bear. And it's because I'm so emotionally uh, invested in that book that that's the reason why it's one of my two favorites. My other favorite is a book called Petey. And I don't know if any of you have read it, but it's about an old man that I met that grew up in an insane asylum with cerebral palsy. And in real life, I um, I met him at an, at an uh, old old person's home or a nursing home and um, a retirement center. And I, I adopted him as my grandfather and I, I knew him for 12 years. 
And he was the most incredible human being I've ever met. In fact, that that movie, uh, as it's going to be called um, Voice from an Empty Room, is on its way to Netflix. So um, if you see that at the theaters or at uh, on Netflix, Voice from an Empty Room, that's my book, Petey. And I have another question. <clears throat> if, if you had to pick an author that you'd read, who is your favorite author? Ooh, that's a hard one. Because, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd have one author that I would read, but there's a number of them that, you know, I. and, and it's a hard question for me, and I'll tell you why. I, I've met so many authors in my life, okay? And some of them, <laughs> just between you and me, they're really, really, really nice people. I'd love to have them for neighbors, but they're not the very, very best writer writers that I've ever met. And then there's some that are just awesome writers. Oh my goodness, they're incredible writers. But after I met them, <laughs> again, just between you and me, okay, they're kind of jerks. And um, so when you ask me my favorite writers, it's who who is really, really good writers and good people, okay? Um, Richard Peck, uh, the author, is, is a good friend of mine. Gary Paulson was a good friend of mine. I liked him as a person. Uh, Will Hobbs, uh, Roland Smith, um, some of those people are, are, you know, really, really good, good writers, and they're also very, very good people. Um, and there's a, there's a few others, too. I'd have to just think on them a little bit, so I didn't play favorites. Okay, thank you for answering my questions. You guys are coming up with some good questions. Hi, my name is Zanae, and my question is, what job did you want when you were younger? Uh, <laughs> what job would I want when I was younger? Um, I like photography. I like photography. I like woodwork. I like woodwork. I had a big, wood, big wood shop that I created and was starting to do uh, woodwork when my first novel was published. And finally, my that career took off. And I, after ten years, I hadn't been in my or even turned the lights on in my wood shop. So I sold all my equipment. That was too bad. Um, something I maybe I, I'd like to try sometime is uh, I, I don't know why, but I'd kind of like to try stand-up comedy. Comedy. Thank you for answering my question. <clears throat> um. Hello. Um. What was the first book you ever published? That I ever published. Yeah, it was a, a book called uh, Rescue Josh McGuire, and it was about a little boy that finds an orphan bear cub and tries to save its life. And it was because I found a couple bear cubs and tried to save their life after getting involved in bear issues with my bear Buffy. So you can kind of you can kind of see where I I think most authors that are fictional writers, if you really pin them down and and uh, made them tell the truth they'd say that probably 60% of what they write is real life, that they just turn around and change the names and the places, and only 40% is really fiction. And that's the way all my writing is. I put so much of my own self and my own likes and dislikes and travels and ideas and everything into my writing that it's people that know me very well, they say, oh, man, you can sure see you in your writing. I say, oh, that's interesting. Thanks for answering my question. You bet.
<clears throat> I just have uh, two more questions myself, and then I'll see if uh, somebody from the other classrooms are also wanting to um, ask some questions. Um, my first one is, you mentioned um, that Touching Spirit Fair is going to possibly become a movie. Will you be writing the screenplay for yourself? No. No, in fact, the screenplay has already been written, and it was written by a screen uh, a person that the executive director uh, actually uh, hired to write the screenplay. Writing screenplays is a whole different skill <laughs> than writing a, a book. It's it's uh, it, I've tried it. I've done some work at it, but I'm not very good at screenplays. Awesome. Um, my my next question is about uh, in. in recent times we've had a lot of um criticism slash movement towards being more inclusive and i'm wondering what your your response would be to those critics who say that um you shouldn't be writing an aboriginal or indigenous uh from an indigenous point of view okay i have mixed thoughts on that i in general i agree in general, I agree. Write to what you know, and and if I'm, but but I also know that that um, if I write only to what I know personally, exactly personally, I can't have any female characters. I can't have any indigenous characters. I can't have any um, you know alternate lifestyle characters. I can't have any girls in my books. I can't have. I mean, there's. I, my writing would be so narrow. And so what I do is I say, okay, I, um, I know what discrimination is like, okay? Then I can match stories any day of the week with somebody that uh, has, has known discrimination of some kind. Um, so what I do is I, like as an example, in Touching Spirit Bear, um, the Native American culture in, in Touching Spirit Bear did not need to be really strongly emphasized for the story to work. It was a setting. It was a backdrop for the for the setting. And so I did my research. Oh my goodness! I I probably traveled for a month up in British Columbia in the islands in northwest of Bella Bella, and I interviewing uh, Haida spiritual leaders. And I had probably half a dozen uh, elders read the manuscript, make sure that there was nothing that offended anybody or that they, that I might be, have made an error. Um, there was a professor, college professor from, uh, that was Clinkett um, up in Juneau that I gave him the manuscript and I said, I don't want to preface it in any way. I just want you to read it and give me your response. And it was very, very positive. Um, so I, I, the one thing that I, I have a little bit of a problem with is, is I don't, claim that as an example when cole matthews uh carries the ancestor rocks up the mountain or when he um he soaks in the ponds i i don't claim that that's clinket culture that's just one way that garvey discovered that he can get through to kids you know troubled youth and uh it was the same it was the same for uh, this this one height of spiritual leader i met he used all those methods. He taught me those methods. I did not come up with carving the totems and, and dancing the dances or any of that stuff. That all came from uh, straight from uh, indigenous uh, First Nation people. And so now somebody comes up to me and says, well, you can't use that because that's not 
that's not really a part of our culture. That's not a, you know, I said, I don't claim it is. I don't claim it is. It's just that this one indigenous person thought of those methods. So it's like, if I'm Haida or if I'm Clinket or something, does that mean that I can't come up with an original thought because I'm that culture? So everything in my brain has to come from that culture? No, no, not at all. And so I think sometimes we get so defensive of, of um, our, our cultural uh, backgrounds that we, we tend to wash out the good, we tend to wash out the originality of, of individuals. Um, so I, I, I know the homework that I've done to make sure that I can defend every word in, in touching spirit bear. So I have no problem. I've had a few professors that have just taken me to the coals over that book. I don't buy it. They, they're, they're fighting their own issues. And, and, I, and I, I applaud their, their efforts because I, I know what they're trying to accomplish. And, 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 and they need to get the credit and, and uh, make sure that this is portrayed right. And I understand all that. But, but I also know the effort I've put into making it, making it um, accurate. Awesome. Yeah, that's a very good response, and I, I appreciate that. Um, anybody from 7A, 7B have any questions for Mr. Michael? <laughs> oh, we got a couple there from Miss Daniel's room. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite writing nook or spot that like helps you think of the ideas for your books? Um, yeah, no. I um uh, I when I was in Montana living for 38 years. I had a little log cabin that I was on the back part of our property and I would go there and that was my writer's garret. And I would do my rough drafting there because when, when I'm rough drafting a book, you guys, from the beginning of a, when I have the idea to when I finally look at the book is almost three years. And here's the reason why. Um, it takes me about three months to go do the research and about five months where I just hole up and I am not a pleasant person to be around during the rough drafting phase of my book and I go to this little cabin and then I have about eight months of just fun. I travel all over the world. I go and camp beside a waterfall. I can edit in a, in a coffee, you know, I mean in a traffic jam, but that's my fun time when I treat myself. And then I doing all the rewrites. And then when I finish that, I go, I go and send my manuscript to my publisher. They have it for about three months. Then they send it back for three more months of editing based on things they question. So, um, but yeah, I, 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 I do and I don't have a, a special writing place, but when I'm rough drafting, I, I'm very on, on social. And uh, that's when I tend to hole up in an office or in a cabin or somewhere I go by myself. Thank you. Yeah, good question. Anybody else from either of those rooms? Uh, what's your What's your daily process for writing? And then we'll we'll send it to Miss Daniels. I I'm not a real disciplined writer. Okay, I'm not a very disciplined writer. I know some people that say every morning at five o'clock I show up at the computer and I write till eight thirty, and then I go down and I have a cup of coffee, and then I come back up and I write till eleven fifteen, and then I go. <laughs> you guys, I can't do that. I I tend to. I, I do make a rule for myself, show up, just show up in the office. And uh, I, I can think of a thousand reasons why some mornings I don't want to go to the office to get, sit down at my computer, but I, I have one rule, show up. And then I find that when I show up and start writing, then I'm off to the races for the day. Um, 
So that's kind of awesome. How do you feel when you see all your books published? I, I do I what? How do you feel when you see all your books published? And oh, books how do I feel when I see one of my books published? Um, really proud. I'm really proud. Um, they're my babies. They're my babies. And um, you guys, one of the things that I've noticed when you get involved in in making a career in the arts, um, if somebody comes up to you and says, "What do you What are you going to be when you you know graduate from college?" and you go, "Well, I'm in pre law, or I'm pre med, or I'm in my third year of uh, education work as a secondary teacher," or you know you you get respect if you tell somebody, you know, "Well, I'm going to be a uh, uh, a musician." or I'm going to be a writer. And they'll, they'll say, what do you have published? And you say, well, nothing yet. And they'll, they'll roll their eyes like, why don't you tell me you're unemployed? You get zero credit <laughs> when, you, when you're trying to go into the arts as a career. <clears throat> but once you make it, once you make it, oh my goodness, people hold you up on a pedestal like you're you know, uh, a demigod. And, and, and I have people that roll their eyes at me one, one month come back after my first book won the International Reading Association Award and they're world-class uh, uh, doctors. And they'll say, oh, I always wanted to publish a book. How did you get to it? And they give you all this respect. And so I guess it's a long way of saying, the hardest thing I think is you have to believe in yourself. The system, it wasn't like during Roman times when they'd sit around and the philosopher and the poets were revered over, over the physicians. You know, that's with the, we don't live in that world anymore, that's for sure. Thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Jack, and my question is, uh, do you consider yourself an expert? No, <laughs> no. And I'll tell you really why. Um, I'm not sure if it was Einstein or who it was that said, if you take everything that you know and put it inside a marble, what you don't know is the outside of that marble, and it's not very much. You think you know pretty much everything. If that everything you know is inside a basketball, what you don't know is much bigger, and you're aware that you don't know a lot of things, and so you feel a little bit kind of stupid. If everything you know is inside a, a big 30-foot sphere, you know a lot, but oh my goodness, when you look around, you're, you, the more you know, the more you're aware of what you don't know. And I think probably people like uh, Einstein went to their grave feeling like they were the biggest dummies in the world because they were aware of so much that they didn't know because of how much they did know. And so the, 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 more I, the better I've become as a writer, the more I've become aware of what I don't know as a writer. And that makes me sometimes feel really, you know, deficient. So the, I would have to say an ex, a no with a huge exclamation mark. What makes someone an expert in your opinion? Okay, I didn't get that last question. What makes someone an expert in your opinion? Um, I don't, I don't know if, if anybody, I, I do, there, there's people that I respect for their knowledge. Okay. But what makes them, somebody once told me X, if you break the word expert down, X is an unknown factor and spurt is a drip under pressure. 
So <laughs> maybe an expert is really just in the mind of the person who thinks they're real knowledgeable. Yeah, that's, I'll have to think on that question after I get off and I'll probably come back with a different answer. Thank you. All right, uh, last chance, 7A, 7B, any other questions? Anybody in this room, any last questions? I would like right. to, uh, if we, if I could, I'd like to end today's session with just a little bit of a, uh, a thought to you guys. Um, we've just, all, all of us in Canada, here in the United States, we've just finished a really, really rough year. Um, this whole, for a year and four months, three months now, we've had this pandemic going around. I see you guys wearing your masks. I've had to wear my mask everywhere. We've had to isolate ourselves from other people. Uh, a lot of our socializing has gone out the window. And um, it's been hard. It's been hard. And a lot of people are under stresses that they never have been under before. And um, I, I, I think about that and I, I realize that, you know, I think of touching Spirit Bear and the lessons that I learned. The, the you know, life is a hot dog. If you, if you eat it to stay alive, that's all it'll do is keep you alive. If you break it in half and give somebody half, you're sharing. It becomes a sharing. If you if you sing and put on music and dance while you're doing it, it becomes a celebration. Life is whatever you treat it. And I guess in light of everything that we've been through in the last year and three months, um, I would encourage every one of you, um, be kind, be kind. Um, the world needs you guys. The, as young students now, the world needs you guys more than it's ever needed somebody in their in 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 our lives. But but you're no good to the world if you're me 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 me. If you're feeling sorry for yourself and oh I'm having such a rough time. And I tell you what, there's there's people having way worse time than any of you could ever imagine. I've met a few of them. And so my uh, my um, I would challenge each one of you to um, go out today and not in a big sense, in a real small sense, start out and look for look for some way that somebody that needs something that, that you can give a little bit of encouragement, um, something that you can maybe help a little bit that somebody needs uh, is having a bad day and you're the person that came along that's in a position where you can give it to them. And um, you guys, be kind, be kind. Okay. There you are, folks. That is the interview that we had with uh, Ben Michelson talking about Touching Spirit Bear and uh, the process of being a writer. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to the students for their questions, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Take care and uh, enjoy listening to our last few podcasts of the season. We'd love to hear from you. Send your questions, show ideas, or any other feedback to talkingtoexperts at gmail.com.